Good morning, good morning, good morning. We all well? Excellent news. Listen, from the last time I was here, I was telling the the people in the first service, from the last time I was here, I turned the big 4-0, guys. Can you see the wrinkles starting to form just here in the centre of the head? I want to scrunch my face real tight. The big 4-0 is upon me. I can hardly believe it. And you get to that stage of your life and you start to think to yourself, sure, I don't know if I expected life to look like this, you know? Didn't think that this was the way this would turn out. I remember growing up all the things that I thought I would do with my life when I was 15. Big dream, big dream when I was 15, was to be an accountant. <laughs> what better? Why are you laughing, Becky? You know, picture me as an accountant. What better career? I even did additional maths at school so that I would be prepared for my career as an accountant. That didn't work out. When I was about 13, I thought, now this really is a good career. I'd actually still like to be this. So if the whole, you know, preaching and teaching thing doesn't work out, I might go back to this. A librarian. Who wouldn't want to be a librarian? Like, I, I know you're all pretending you don't want to be librarians, but there's somebody in this room and that's your heart's desire. I know it and you are my people. Like a room full of books and you got to organise it all. Unreal. Love, would have loved to have been a librarian. When I was about 10, my big dream, you can, you can tell it changed my mind quite frequently, can't you? When I was about 10, my big dream was to be a primary school teacher. Okay, And what I loved was, I don't know if they did this in your school, but in my school, in the mighty Millington, Years of Millington people in. In the mighty Millington, what they used to do was they used to give you your notebooks, your jotters home at the end of the year, you know, that you'd been working in. And I absolutely loved it, right? When you got to the end of May and you'd finished your jotter and you knew they were going to have to give you a whole new jotter and you're only going to use about 10 pages and you'd get to take the whole thing home. Like, I mean... How sad a child was I. But I was like delighted because what I could do was, I remember like my wee shoulders would be back, my wee backpack and all coming out of school on the last day with my bag full of jotters half empty because I used to bring them home and I used to fill them with work and make my little brother do them and pretend I was a teacher all summer long. Brilliant, not brilliant for him, but brilliant for me. He thought I'd be a teacher. That didn't really work out either. My first career I ever wanted to do, right? Probably about four or five. First career was I wanted to be a clown. I mean, what better way to spend your life? Those guys got into the wee tiny cars and they were always laughing and they had buckets of glitter to throw over people and they honked their wee horns and they got to hit people and trip people up and they got paid for it. I was like, sign me up. I want to be a clown. Well, none of that worked out. None of it worked out. But you know the one thing I didn't want to be? The one job I absolutely did not want to have and still do not want to have, I did not want to be a podiatrist. Who on earth wants to take care of somebody else's feet? I don't even want to take care of my own feet. If you're a podiatrist, I, honestly, you deserve a medal or an award or something because somebody needs to take care of the feet, but I am not your woman for that job. The thought of that makes me feel a little bit queasy. I'm not going to lie. I'm, I'm just not fussed on the idea. And the, and the problem with my dislike of feet is this. The Easter story is full of feet. They're, they're everywhere. You can't avoid it. So I'm going to have to get over my wee issues around feet because there are feet everywhere. In fact, today when we think about Palm Sunday, and Palm Sunday is the day we, we celebrate the triumphal entry of Jesus and the crowds are all waving and they're going mad. And it's like this moment where they maybe actually are getting a handle on who he is because they're giving him what he's due. They're, they're praising him and they're worshipping him. It's brill. And right between that story in the Gospel of John, that story is bookended with two stories about feet. On both sides, there's a story about feet in front of it and a story about feet after it. Because feet are very important, whether I like it or not, feet are very, very important in the story of Jesus. And what we're going to do today is we're going to look at these two stories, the bookend Palm Sunday's uh, story in the Gospel of John. 
These two stories of feet. And as we do, what we're going to say is this. These feet give us a revelation of who Jesus is. And also, these feet give us a revelation of who we are. Who knew feet could say so much? That's what we're going to do today. But my advice to you and what we're going to do today is, you see, every time you pick up a, a story in the Gospels, and I know many of you will do this already, but just in case you haven't thought about reading the Bible this way before, when you pick up a story in the Gospels of Jesus, what you need to do is this. You need to keep one eye on that story in the New Testament, in the Gospels. And you need to keep the other eye on the Old Testament. One eye on what's happening in the New Testament with Jesus in that moment, and one eye on the Old Testament. Because actually what Jesus is doing is Jesus is the culmination of how the story has been building right from Genesis. It's been building, 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 building. Layers and layers of imagery and ideas all been building. And Jesus is like the one who makes the whole puzzle make sense. The whole puzzle of scripture comes together in him. So everything that Jesus does, everything that Jesus says, has its beginnings back in the start of the Old Testament, back in that part of scripture. It's a bit like a movie that's been unfolding, a storyline, a plotline unfolding, and Jesus becomes the climax of the story where it all falls into place. And so when you read what Jesus is doing, read it like this. Where have I heard that before? Or where have I seen that image before? Or where has that idea happened before? And if you find a story that's similar or language that's similar in the Old Testament, take those two stories out, lay them side by side and read them together because all of a sudden the Bible will just go with ideas and imagery and you will get a deeper revelation of who Jesus is. That's what we're going to do today and we're going to do it through these two stories of fate. So the first one, buckle yourself up, we're going to be talking about fate all day. So if you don't like fate, I understand, I'm sorry, but this is what we're doing. Right, John 12, here we go. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honour and Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, and she poured it out on Jesus' feet. And she wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. One of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold? And the money given to the poor, it was worth a year's wages. He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and as keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was in it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she would save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. And here's my problem with this story. Judas is right. Judas is right. It's a huge waste. You understand here it says a year's wages, but this is a woman who doesn't work. So this is her life savings. This is, the, this is all that she has. This is everything. And now, after saving it all of these years, she breaks it, and now it's all over the floor and all over his feet, and she ain't getting that back in the box. Gone. Like that. Seems like a huge waste of resources. Judas seems right. Unless you understand whose feet she poured it out on. And the moment that that becomes clear, we realise that Mary couldn't have saved her best for any better moment than this one. 
There was not going to be one moment in her future where she regretted that she had poured it out in that moment because this moment that she was in right now, it was going to come and it was going to go and she would never have that moment again. And she would not regret because her life savings, the only place worthy of her to pour that out was at the feet of Jesus. And before we get to dig into this today, can I just offer you a little piece of advice from my own journey? If you are ever struggling to give God what he's asking you for, you know what you don't need to do? You don't need to try harder. That's not the answer here. If you are struggling to give God what he's asking you to, you need a revelation of who he is. Because the moment that you see him, you will bring everything you have and you will pour it all out of his feet and then you'll go and try and find something else to bring to. And it will seem like the best possible way for you to spend your very best. It just requires a revelation of who he is. So what we're going to do this morning through these stories of feet is we're going to get a little bit of a picture or a reminder or a revelation of who Jesus is. Because you see, when we look at the word here used for feet, that she poured it out on Jesus' feet in the original Greek, if you trace that word right the way back through to the Old Testament, so the Old Testament is written in Hebrew, but you can read a Greek translation. And when you trace that word right the way through, back through the Old Testament, the first place you're going to find that very word is not on the bottom of a pair of human legs. You're going to find it in a wee animal, a wee dove, in fact. You're going to find it in Genesis 8, in a story that you will all know well if you grew up in Sunday school or you've read the Bible, of Noah and his ark. And the context of the story is this. The the world has gone to pot. An absolute disaster. Everybody's fighting with everybody. Everybody does evil all of the time. There is nothing good in the world. Complete disaster. A flood comes. Noah's uh, family are the only ones that remain on the earth. They've been on this boat for a while. The flood starts to recede. And then this verse happens. In Genesis 8 verse 9 it says, But the dove could find nowhere to perch. In the Greek it's to place his feet. There's nowhere to place his feet because there was water all over the surface of the earth. So it returned to Noah and the ark. And the first place that we see the word feet used that is used here in the story of Jesus is this little dove who can find nowhere to place his feet. That's really important symbolism because the dove is a symbol of peace. And in this moment, there is no place of peace on the earth for the symbol of peace to land. There's nowhere where peace can flourish. There's nowhere where peace can grow. And I don't know if you've noticed, but I feel like our world is still a lot like that. Noah was going to get a fresh start for humanity, but it didn't take us long to mess that up too. It's really hard to find a place of peace in modern society. Everywhere you go, people are at war. I mean, on the macro level, countries are at war, but also... You know, just, just in your own personal relationships, I would hazard a guess that everybody listening today has somebody in their life who they have a broken relationship with. Maybe a, a friend they no longer speak to, a child who's estranged, a spouse they don't have a relationship with anymore, a parent who's absent, a person who, who was a friend but is now more like an enemy because either they made war with you or you made war with them or it was a combination of the two. We find it incredibly difficult to live at peace. And there's there's an air in society of war making. Everybody's ready to attack everybody else all the time. I don't know if you've noticed. If you haven't noticed, you're obviously not on Facebook. You go on Facebook for five minutes, you will notice that there is an air of attack 
around everybody. You put up a picture of your cat and somebody's going to criticise you for that. I promise you, it will not be long till that cat is not fluffy enough and how dare you put that picture up. And you not know my cat died last week and I'm very upset about your cat. Why did you put your picture of your cat up? Is that even your cat? That looks like my cat. My cat went missing. I think you stole my cat. And before you know it, you're arrested and you're down Port Down Police Station because somebody stole your cat. Anyway, I'm getting carried away. The point of the matter is this. There is an air of war in the place. There is a sense of attack. And as a result, people are very afraid. And I think that all of us are experiencing a a measure of anxiety the way people do when they live at war. Because we're all watching out for when the trouble's going to come. Where's the next criticism going to come from? Where's the next betrayal? Where's the next attack? We're all living like people at war. Stressed and worried and concerned. I need to change my mic. Two mics because one of me is not enough. (laughs) You're so blessed. Somebody's clearly living right in this room. Do I need to turn the other one off? I'm looking for a nod. They'll They'll do it. These guys know what they're doing. Where were we? Yes, war everywhere. And you see this rising anxiety we're all feeling. At least part of that is because we're all very nervous because people are when they're at war. And so there's no place for peace to land its feet. And that's why, that's why the Gospel of John is so incredibly beautiful when it opens like this. Are you ready? Now, remember, are we dove? Are we dove who had nowhere to place its feet? When we open the Gospel of John, John uses the words of John the Baptist and he tells us this. John the Baptist says, I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. Jesus because all of a sudden there was a place of peace for the symbol of peace for the person of peace to place himself on Jesus created a place of peace and that place of peace had been foretold all throughout scripture in Isaiah 9 it tells us that he's going to be the prince of peace in Isaiah 53 it's going to say that his wounds bought us peace he is a great peacemaker he is the prince of peace and when he arrives everything shifts And the possibility for peace for the first time presents itself in him. And you want to know the most beautiful thing about this all? Why does this even matter to me today, Charlotte? Do you want to know why? Because when Jesus went back to the Father and ascended to the Father, the spirit of peace remained. At Pentecost, the spirit is poured out and the fruit of that spirit is peace. And that spirit dwells in those of us who know and love and follow Jesus. And so when you go into a war-torn landscape, You become a place where peace can land and peace can flourish. So when you go into your office and everybody's fighting and you think there's no way to get these people to work together, guess what? All of a sudden there is because you're a person of peace where peace can land. You're carrying the spirit of peace and that changes everything. When you go into that family and you hate meeting up at Christmas because you know there's always going to be a fight because nobody gets along. Who says your family can't have peace? Who, Who sold you that lie? When you carry the spirit of peace, who produces the fruit of peace, sent by the prince of peace, and he is with you everywhere you go. So everywhere you go, there is a potential for peace where there has always been war. And so the the atmosphere has changed. The possibilities have changed. Prince of peace. That's what we see when we begin to look at feet in the Bible. But we're going to move our attention now from the feet of this little dove to the feet of Jesus. Because actually in the story we just read, we see that Jesus' feet are dripping in oil. 
In the story we'll read in a few moments' time, some people who are going to get their feet washed, but they're going to get their feet washed with water, which makes a whole lot of sense. But here Jesus is getting his feet washed with oil. Seems very strange, doesn't it? Why would you have your feet washed with oil? Well, actually, when you go back to the Old Testament, you're going to find some imagery there of that too. In Deuteronomy 33, you're going to find a man called Moses, who you've maybe heard about. He split that big old Red Sea. You're going to find Moses, and you're going to find him blessing the people of Israel. And the people of Israel are part of these tribes. There's these 12 tribes, and and they've descended from these brothers, and they all rise up. And Moses is blessing all of these tribes. And as he begins to bless the tribes, you can imagine what it would be like to be there, right? Waiting for big Moses to give the blessing. You're like, I wonder what I'm going to get. I wonder what we're going to get today, right, Moses? And you're up at the front, your best Sunday suit on, up at the front, waiting for Moses to bless you. And here comes Asher's blessings, right? So if you're in the tribe of Asher, you've got your head up now because you want to hear what you're going to get. And he says, about Asher, he said, most blessed of sons is Asher. Well, this is going well. It's going to be a good blessing. Most blessed of sons is Asher. Let him be favored by his brothers. Excellent. I'll take that. Favored by my brothers? Absolutely. And let him bathe his feet in oil. Sorry, what? What, Moses? Do you, want to, do you want to check your notes? Are you sure that's the blessing? Not like bless him with a house in Ballyhannon. Nothing like that. No, bless, bless him with you. We want me to bathe my feet in oil. That's my blessing. Great. That's a blessing that they get. Now, I want you to carry that over though with you and see Jesus here now with his feet dripping in oil. And what is happening in this moment and actually what happens throughout Jesus' story is this. Jesus is identifying himself with the people of Israel. He's saying, I'm one of you. All throughout his story, you will see him time and time again identify himself with the people of Israel. I am one of you. Now, hold on a wee second here. This is God we're talking about. Who's willing to say to this broken people with a history of all kinds of chaos, I'm one of you. Because the blessing of Asher says this, that you are the most blessed son. You carry that with you. Remember whenever he comes out of the water of baptism and the spirit lands on him, what's the voice that comes from heaven? This is my beloved son. You see, in that moment, Jesus is identifying with God. He's saying, I'm God. That's that a revelation moment to the people around because he's saying, I'm God. This is my beloved son. He's identifying with God the Father. I'm God. But then it says, I'm favored among my brothers. And in that moment, Jesus is identifying with Israel. You know the beautiful thing about it is, though, he's not just identifying with Israel. He's identifying with humanity because God becomes human and dwelt among us. God became one of us. I love this passage in Matthew. Jesus' mum and his brothers rock up to see him. And, uh, and then Jesus says this. In, into, that, into the middle of that scene, Jesus says this in Matthew twelve fifty, Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. You just take a wee second breathe that in. Because sometimes we read scripture and it's like in one ear, out the other, and we don't take any time to think about what that means. Jesus is saying, if you are attempting to follow him, you're attempting to live a life that honors the Father. Jesus says, he looks at you and he says, you're my brother, you're my sister, you're my mother. Jesus. Do you understand the privilege of Jesus identifying with you? He's not trying to pretend that you're not his. Like, you know, the weird great aunt at the kitchen table at Christmas and you're like, who's she? Pretend you're not related. Like, Jesus is not ashamed to call himself our brother. 
I have two boys at home, right? Two brothers. I can tell you, those boys know how to cut each other to shreds when they want to. They know how to take each other down a peg or two, right? But you see, if I or anybody else dare to do that, I tell you what, they will come for you. I mean, they're good ported iron boys. They will come for you because ain't nobody messing with their brother. Because that's what brotherly love does. It defends. And you understand that whatever you face this week, you walk into that with Jesus beside you saying, all right, kid, I'm your brother. I'm your, your brother's here with you. It is remarkable. And so this revelation around this table with Jesus' feet dripping in oil, we, we're reminded that he's the prince of peace and he makes peace possible. We're reminded that he's not just the blessed son of God. He's not just one with the father. He's also the favored brother. He's one with us. But I think if you look through the Old Testament, the imagery, the picture, the story that you will find closely resembles, most closely resembles what we saw in John 12 is found in Song of Solomon. Let me remind you of what we read in John 12 before we go to it. And then as I take you to Song of Solomon, I want you to listen really carefully for the words, the language, the imagery, and see if you can't see that this is the same thing happening. Okay? So this is what we read in John 12, that Lazarus was reclining at the table with him. So we have this picture of Jesus sitting at a table. That's important. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard. That's important an expensive perfume that she poured on his feet, wiped with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance. That's important. Now you carry all of that imagery over with you as we go back to the Song of Solomon. And in Song of Solomon, just to give you some context in case you don't know what Song of Solomon about is about, Song of Solomon is, or Song of Songs, is a love story. And many commentators would say it's a love story about God and his people, how much he loves his people, his bride and his groom. Now watch this imagery. In Song of Songs 112, it says this, While the king was at his table, your translation might say couch, but the Hebrew word there, masav, means a round table, so table's a very good translation. While the king was at his table, my perfume, but the original word's not perfume, the original word is nard, where have we seen that before? Spread its fragrance. Where have we seen that before? It's John 12. When the king was at the table, my nard, my perfume spread its fragrance. You know why Mary poured out that most valuable possession that day? Because she had a revelation of the fact the king was at her table. This is not some random bloke, one among many rabbis, some Jewish boy from down the road. This was her king. This wasn't just her king. This was the king of kings, the highest, the one who occupies the highest throne. And of all the tables that he could sit down at, where had he sat? At her table, in her house. And of course, in that honoured moment when the king would come and sit and eat with you at your table. Of course you run and you go and you get your best and you pour it out at his feet. Of course, when would you ever get a moment like this again? Of course, this is precisely the moment that she's been saving her best up for. Because the king is at her table. And I want to tell you today, you see, when you get a, a revelation of who this is that you're doing life with, the one that you love and follow, when you get a revelation that he is the king of kings, you will gather up everything you have saved your whole life long and you will lay it at his feet because you will know there is nowhere better for you to spend that than right there. You have one life. You have one life. 
And at the end of it, you want to say that you spent that on something worthwhile. That what you did with your one life, what you poured that out on, you want to be able to say when you get to the end of your life that it was worth it. That what you spent your life on was worth it. And I want to tell you that there is nothing or no one that you could spend your life on that is more worthy than Jesus. There is no better place for you to lay your life down than at his feet. Because you can spend your whole life trying to amass wealth and position and social power and titles and houses and land. You can spend your life trying to amass all those things. But what does it matter? Because it all goes back in the box. There is no better, superior place for you to pour out the best that you've got than at the feet of Jesus. It's the only place that's worthy of that offering of your one precious life. It's the only place that's worthy. And the moment that you and I get a revelation that the king, the prince of peace, the most blessed son, the favored brother, is sitting at our table, we will run and we will gather all that we've got, our energy, our talents, our experience, our wisdom, our finance, everything that we've got. And we'll say, Jesus, whatever you want, it's yours. And then we'll go and try and find something else because it won't feel like enough. Because it's the king. There is no better place for you to pour it out. And that's why Mary does it that day. Mary is a revelation of who he is. But you know the really beautiful thing? Is as we just as we begin to close up, as we turn the page and get to John chapter 13, and Jesus has now made his triumphal entries come in, we find him at another table. Jesus loves sitting at a table. It's his fave. He loves it. Everywhere in the Gospels, he's sitting at a table, having a meal with somebody. It's beautiful. And in John 13, we see him sit at a table, and some feet appear again, and this time they're going to be washed. And in this moment, in the last moment, we got a real revelation of who Jesus is, but I want to show you that there's a revelation of who you are in John 13. Because John 13 reads like this. It was just before the Passover festival, and Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the father had put all things under his power and he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal. He took off his outer coat. He wrapped a towel around his waist and after that he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord... Are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you don't realize now what I'm doing, but later you'll understand. And of course, the first thing we notice when we read that story is the beauty and brilliance of Jesus. And it should be the first thing we notice, but do not miss what else is being said in the passage. Because in this moment, there is not just a revelation of who Jesus is, there is a revelation of who you are. As one of his followers, as one of his disciples, there is a revelation of who you are. Because you see, this washing of feet, it's not the first time it's appeared in the Bible. Surprise, surprise. It tracks its way all the way back to the first book, to Genesis. And the first place you're going to see people wash feet are in a little couple of stories in Genesis 18 and Genesis 19, two stories back to back. And one of them you're going to find Abraham and the other you're going to find Lot. And you know the people who are getting their feet washed in those moments, in those first times that we see feet being washed in the Bible? Angels angelic visitors and many commentators would argue the Lord himself 
they arrive with Abraham and Lot and their first response is these honoured guests. They need their feet washed. And I want you to carry that truth with you into this moment. As Jesus picks up the feet of Peter and he begins to wash them. And I believe in this moment he's looking Peter in the eye and he's saying this. It has been my honour to be your Lord. It has been my honour to be your Lord. It's been my honour to walk with you these three years. It's been my honour to be your friend and your rabbi. It's been my honour to be your Lord. Is it any wonder? Because all of us in this moment are going, Oh, Charlotte, oh, too much, too much. Pull it back. Is it any wonder that Peter goes, You go and wash my feet. You go and wash my feet. Because Peter doesn't feel worthy of that honour. Because Peter knows Peter. And Peter's thinking, surely Peter's thinking, if you only knew all of the doubt and the dysfunction on the inside of me, Jesus, if you only knew the times that I felt like leaving and and I'm only here by the skin of my teeth, if you only knew the times that I did the things I shouldn't have done and I said the things that you weren't there to hear them, if you only knew me, you would not be saying it's an honor to know me. But Jesus did know him. And Jesus didn't just know the darkness that Peter knew about himself. Jesus knew the darkness that Peter didn't even know was in him yet. Peter was going to betray Jesus and Peter never thought he was capable of that. You asked Peter the week before, will you betray Jesus? Peter would say, absolutely not. I would never do that. And he would mean it. Because isn't that like us as humans? We don't realize the darkness that lurks inside us. And we get up on our high horse, don't we, sometimes? And we look at everybody else making their mistakes and we tut tut and say, oh, I would never do that. Would you not? Would you not? You're not capable of darkness. And the reality is, any of us are capable of doing anything given the the right set of circumstances. There's far more darkness lurking inside us than we even realize ourselves. But in that moment, Jesus knows. Jesus knows the darkness lurking inside Peter and he picks up his feet and he washes them anyway. And I am left asking the question, why? Why would you count it an honor to love Peter and to know him? You know the thing about it is, as I've been thinking about this over the last few weeks, this story, for the first time, I began to realize that as he washes Peter's feet, feet that will desert him, absolutely, the dust of desertion will be on those feet in just a matter of hours, absolutely. But you know when he washes those feet, do you know what Jesus sees? Not the dust of desertion, the dust of commitment. Every crack, every crevice, every blister on that foot is evidence of the fact that Peter has walked hundreds of miles with Jesus. Evidence of the fact that Peter said yes. Evidence of the fact that Peter left his nets and his family and his life to follow Jesus. Evidence of the fact that Peter followed Jesus when he didn't understand Jesus. That Peter followed Jesus when he was disappointed in Jesus. That Peter followed Jesus when he would rather not have followed Jesus. That Peter showed up. Jesus doesn't just see the dust of desertion. He doesn't ignore that. But he also sees the dust of commitment. And can I say to you today, you see whenever you make a mistake... And you're not everything you want to be in your relationship with Jesus. And you do the thing that you're embarrassed of and ashamed of again. And you say the thing you wish you could take back. And you don't do all the things you know you should do. And you do the things you don't know to do. And you're so ashamed because you see the dust in your own feet. And I tell you, while Jesus sees that dust, Jesus also sees the dust of commitment in you that you might be missing. He sees all of the times you said yes when it would have been easier to say no to following him. He sees the times that you forgave your enemy when it was the last thing you wanted to do, but you knew Jesus asked you to. 
He sees the sacrifices that you made that nobody else saw. He doesn't just see the mess. You are not just your worst mistake. You are so much more than that. And Jesus sees it. And though it may feel a little awkward to you, a little over the top, and like you're a whole lot unworthy, I want you today to picture the fact that Jesus is at your feet. What even? King of kings, prince of peace, Lord of all. And he lifts your feet. And as he washes them, he makes a statement. It's my honor to be your Lord. It's my honor to be your king. It's my honor to be your savior. It's my honor to know you and to love you. It's my honor. And before you shrink back, why not for a moment lean into that? And let his love wash over the ache that is inside your soul. Let his love, like oil, heal the betrayal that you have felt from the one that you loved, who has injured you so dearly. Let his love wash over the inadequacy you feel because you haven't been able to do the things you thought you'd be able to do for your family. And you feel utterly inadequate in this moment. A beautiful man in this room right now. And you feel utterly inadequate because you haven't been able to do for your family what you want to And I want you to know that Jesus is proud of you. And he loves you. And in this moment, he washes your feet and he says, it's an honor for me to be your Lord. Is it any wonder? That Mary takes her absolute best thing she's got to give and breaks it out all over him. Because she's never going to find love like this anywhere else. And neither are you. And so today you and I are invited. Not to stay at a distance. But to come right up close to the Jesus who loves you more than you think you're worthy of. The Jesus who says, it's my honor to be your Lord. And so we get to decide today what to do with that invitation, you know. I don't know what your oil is. I don't know what your nard is. I don't know what the thing that you hold precious in your life is. I don't know what that is for you. But I do know this. There's no better place for you to spend that than at the feet of Jesus. Because nobody loves you like he does.